Thanks for tuning into this week's message. For more resources and information about Cedar Valley, please visit cvchurch.org. Some of you notice that that as we start this Christmas in the Neighborhood series, I just want to talk a, a, a bit about Christmas this morning, but I think this is a weird idea where we tend to romanticize the idea of Christmas. And, and I don't mean like it's not special to us, it's not near and dear to us, it's the birth of the Christ, and, and that's great, but we tend to have these romantic ideas of what Christmas will be like. We think, oh, we're all going to be sitting around our pajamas, and we'll drink hot cocoa, and maybe this year we'll do the matching pajamas. Don't self-identify if you do matching pajamas. Nobody wants to know. Don't raise your hand. Just look away, look away, don't act like nothing's up, right? And, and we're going to have story time, and this will be so good, and we'll just have the children. We romanticize the idea because nobody wants to deal with the real world of how Christmas really looks when you have kids. <laughs> I mean, right? And then, and then even the Christmas songs that we sing, and these are Christmas carols that, that have been written by men. These aren't, this isn't scripture, but have you ever thought about this when we sing these Christmas songs? Silent night, holy night, all is calm. All is bright. And we want to make this precious moments event out of it as opposed to, oh my goodness, she's having a baby and it's loud and chaotic even after the epidural. Like nobody wants to deal with that, right? And then even the next line of that song, I think this is funny. The cattle are lowing. The poor baby wakes. But little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. And I'm just telling you, if on the first night of your life, you look over, you wake up and you look over and there is a mooing cow, do we really think no crying he makes? I mean, I just think we tend to, we romanticize this. And out of that, there, there, there become these myths of Christmas. And we joke about that. And I wonder if that doesn't even happen in the church. Like in the church, if we haven't developed these myths, about Christmas. Let me shoot a couple at you. I think there's this myth sometimes, that Christmas is just about the birth of Jesus. That's it, it's just about the birth. And, and, and we say this, as church folk, we do this all the time. Oh, those people are at the mall and they're making Christmas into something it was never intended to be. And we've made it just about the birth of Jesus. And clearly it's that. But I think you'll see this morning it's far more than that. And there's another myth that I think we fall into in the church world sometimes, that that's, Christmas is really for us. Christmas is really for church folk. Church, that, that's, that's what Christmas is really about. And, and I think the story, as we see in the scripture, would lay it out otherwise. So I'm going to ask you to turn your Bibles, uh, Matthew chapter 2, Matthew chapter 2, Matthew chapter 2. And when you get that, I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet, if you would. And if you're new here, uh, just know this, we, we, we don't up, down, up, down the whole morning right? But we always stand when we read our primary text, and here's the reason why. We believe, we come expectant. We believe that God has a word for us this morning. This is God's word. This isn't some fellows who got together and wrote a good book, and so when we stand, we just do this to remind ourselves. Oh, that's right. This is God speaking to us. This is Matthew chapter 2. It says this, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. Let's pray. So Father, this morning we thank you for your word. We thank you that you, you desire to speak to us, that the God of creation, the eternal God, would have a word for us this morning. So Father, this morning, give us ears to hear. What are you saying? Father, I'm praying for those people this morning who um, are far away from you, and they happen to come into a service, and, and they're far away. I'm praying, Holy Spirit, I'm trusting that you will speak, that you'll speak very clearly to them. 
Father, I'm praying for those who have been in the church for a long time, and they know all the stories, God, and they're here every week, but maybe their hearts have grown tired and weary or, or just callous, and I pray that you would speak to them. And Father, for those this morning who are either here or who've tuned in for the last time, and they would say, this is it for me. This is the last time. I'm going to make a spouse happy. I'm going to make my parents happy, but this is it. God, for all of us, Lord, would you capture our hearts. Holy Spirit, would you speak clearly to us this morning. Do this in a way that brings honor and glory to your name, God, and in a way that draws us closer to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. And so uh, we're going to be looking at this text. And, and are these myths appropriate? Is it just about the birth of Jesus? And is it kind of just for church folks? Is it just for us? So look in your Bibles. This is Matthew chapter 2. This is verse 1. And it says this, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea. And again, I always say this because I'm extremely visual. And so if you're a visual person, these things always help. But Israel, you think of this large strip of land, right? The northern region is Galilee. And Galilee, just so you know, was kind of Galilee of the Gentiles. It was, it was, there were Jews clearly that lived there, but a lot of Gentiles lived up in Galilee. Then you have the area of Samaria, that middle strip. That's where all the Samaritans lived. Jews hated Samaritans. Nobody even wanted to go through the land. And then you have Judea. Judea is where we're talking about. We're down in the south. This is where Jerusalem is. This is, if you're a good Jew, if you're a good Jew, if you're a good Jew, you, you live in Judea. This is where Jerusalem is. This is where the temple is. And Bethlehem would be a town that's about 60 miles southwest of Jerusalem. And so that's where we're talking about. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. It's very interesting to me that Bethlehem means, literally means, in, in the Hebrew, it means house of bread. And I find that very interesting that the bread of life was born in the house of bread. I think that's very interesting. And so Jesus was born there. And then, and then Matthew goes on to tell us this, that during the reign of King Herod, now you just got to know this about King Herod because if you're into this stuff like this would make a great podcast series, this would great, make a great movie series. But Herod is unbelievable. This guy is the most toxic a sociopath, narcissist in history. He's up at the top of the list. And for a number of reasons, and I just call him the three Ps, I call him, first of all, the king. He's over the top, Herod. He's just over the top in everything. And for the three Ps, first of all, he's over the top pretentious. And so in Jewish tradition, we, we, we read about King David uh, before he was King David, before he was at that level, he was just David. And so at one point, Saul, who is the first king, Saul is hunting him, he's chasing him, and David goes up into an area in the hills called Masada, and he, he hides in a cave there. And so Herod, who's a Jew, he's really a Roman puppet, but he's a Jew, Herod knows of David, and he knows about Masada, and he said, well, if a cave in Masada was good enough for that king, I'll one-up him. And so Herod builds this amazing palace up in the caves in Masada. I mean, it's just, it, was, it was palatial. It was just unbelievable. And in fact, it was an area that was known to have great drought. And so uh, Herod said, well, here's what I'm going to do. So he builds this cistern system that would collect water. The system itself was so massive, it was so great, that it was said that in one rainfall, it would collect enough water for 10,000 people for over a year. 
It would serve over 10,000 people for a year. He just always had to one-up everybody. That was just him. The other thing that he did was he found this way to preserve figs and dates. It was said that Herod found a way to preserve figs and dates. And again, he's got to do everything over the top. And so he's just stored and stored and stored figs and dates everywhere, figs and dates everywhere. And he found this way to preserve them and keep them. In the 1940s, an archaeological group went there and they dug it up and they found what they believed was Herod's big palace up in Masada. And they found all these figs and dates still preserved and this group that I read, this group opened them and ate them. Dates and figs had been stored for 2,000 years and I'm just thinking afterwards which they were looking for Herod's bathroom. Exactly, because like it's unimaginable. So this guy was just over the top unpretentious. The other P is that he was over the top paranoid. Herod was unbelievable paranoid. At one point he thought that his wife was, was kind of out to get him, that she was conspiring against him. And so he killed his wife. For good measure, he killed her mother and he killed her brother. And then down the road, he killed his own three sons. Like, he's just over the top. He's this, he's this narcissist. He's, he's unbelievable. At his inauguration, what he did was he, he invited anybody who was known to be kind of a, a, a family enemy. Like, they, were, they maybe had negative feelings about his family or maybe they were really enemies of the family. And he said, hey, as a show of goodwill, as a show of peace, he invites everybody. He throws this huge party. He throws this huge party and he invites them all to the party. And then he has them all killed which is where we get the expression. Kevin is like, killer party, dude. That was awesome. Like, they, he just, they just killed them all. That was totally Herod. I mean, he was doing stuff like this all the time. Uh, he used to dress up like a commoner, and then he'd go walk around town. He'd kind of duck his head down, and he'd, he'd have these disguised clothing on. He'd walk around town, and he'd just find out, what's the scuttlebutt? What are people saying? What's the word on the street? And then he sends his goon squad in to kill anybody who spoke negatively about him. He's just paranoid. And then maybe the craziest thing that I read about Herod, the craziest thing that I had ever seen about Herod was that uh, Herod was on his deathbed. And so he gives an order to kind of his cabinet that when he dies, he, was, he had, he had uh, acknowledged like dozens of the noblemen in the area. And he said, when I, when I die, I want instantly, I want all those noblemen executed. Because he felt that when I die, I want the whole land to mourn. And he said, the whole land isn't going to mourn if just I die. So he wants all these noblemen wiped out as well. So he's pretentious and he's paranoid. And then the third P, and it's weird because this is a silent P, but he's greedy. Some of you pronounce it, I don't anymore. But it's just, it helps us remember it, you know, so it's greedy. And so he's crazy greedy. And so the taxation system of that day was unbelievable. And Herod knew that when he became king, that the taxation rate was already very, very, very high. So Caesar gets 12, if you're a commoner, if you're a commoner that day, Caesar gets 12.5%. And then there are other taxes, other taxes. And Herod, because he's so greedy, silent P, uh, what Herod does is he sets the taxation rate at 50%. So now you have 50% that goes to Herod. You have another 12.5% that has to go to Caesar. Total tax rate for the commoner of that day, and he knew this when he came in, total tax rate of that day for the commoner, 75%. Now here's the amazing thing to me, because whenever we read through the New Testament, what did Jesus say? Pay your taxes pay your taxes. And so here we have Jesus. He's, he's, in, he's born in Bethlehem in Judea, right, during the reign of King Herod. And then the text goes on and it says this, that about that time some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem and they're asking this question, 
Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we've come to worship him. These are wise men. You think of these wise men as astrologers, not astrologers as like crazy, kooky, like, hey, I'm, I'm gonna tell you your horoscope. These guys are more like scientists, really, almost. And they were, they were of the elite, the noble class in their, in their day. And they came from Eastern lands. They're Persians. These guys are Persians. They're not Jews. They're not from Eastern Israel. They're from Eastern lands, like could have been Babylon. And it says this, where's the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star. These are astrologers. They saw, we saw his star and we've come to worship him. Now, here's the question that I have when I read this. Okay, you see a star. How do you know there's this newborn king? How do you know that this king is born? How do you know that there's a king in Israel and you're supposed to go and worship him? How would they possibly have known that just because they saw a star? They saw all kinds of stars. Why now are they headed to Jerusalem and why are they gonna worship? And the answer is, lies in this, that we know that in the history of Israel, they had two major invasions. They had the Assyrian invasion in the late 700s BC, and then about 130 or 40 years later, they were invaded by the Babylonians. And both times what they do is they take, uh, they, they, they overtake you, but then they come in and they take captives. And so when they take captives, they don't just take anybody. They're taking the best and the brightest. That's what they do. They take the best and the brightest out of Israel and they take them back to their land and say, what can we get from these people? What can they contribute? And we know that Nebuchadnezzar, when he was the king of Babylon, that they invaded Israel and they came in. And we read about it in the book of Daniel. We know that he took Daniel. We know that they took Shadrach. We know, if you know the story, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the three men who were thrown into the fire furnace because they wouldn't bow to Nebuchadnezzar's God and worship him, and they're thrown into the fiery furnace. And we read in the book of Daniel where an angel of the Lord stepped in and saved them, right? Guys like that, smart, sharp, really, really intelligent guys, they were taken. Well, think about this. They're Jews, and when they go, what did they take with them? They take the writings of Moses. They take the writings of the prophets. They would have spoken of them. They would have told some of these stories. They would have repeated some of the prophecies out of the Old Testament. Okay, here's one that I promise you they would have told. When you go home, you can look this up. It's in Numbers chapters 22, 23, 24, the whole story unlays. There's a king of the Moabites at that time, and his name is Balak. Moab was a land that was just east of the Jordan River. So it's not in Israel, it's not in the Promised Land, and it's right down by uh, the, the Dead Sea, right, right, by, right across the river from Jericho. And so the Israelites, we know this, they were slaves in Egypt for about 400 years, right? Then comes Moses, leads them out. They wander in the desert for 40 years. Now they're getting ready to, to re-enter the Promised Land. They're by Jericho. They're going to enter the Promised Land. And they go through Moab, and, and King Balak is the king of Moab. And he's like, these folks are on my yard, they're stomping out the grass, they're animals, they're gonna eat all our crops, he's upset about it, right? And he wants to defeat and wipe out the Israelites. Only the problem is he knows he can't do it. So what's he do? Oh, he's looking for someone to put a curse on the Israelites that will squash the Israelites and then he can go in and take, take charge, he can go in and attack them. Well, he finds a wicked prophet. This isn't a false prophet. This is a guy who really hears from God. His name is Balaam. He really hears from God, but he's very evil and he's very wicked. And Balak sends an emissary to them, to him, and he says, hey, you know, they tell him, hey, King Balak wants you to come and curse the Israelites. And again, because he's a wicked prophet, Balaam says, mm, okay, if the price is right, is basically what he says. So now he's got to go. He's got to go to King Balak. So he gets on his donkey. Some of you read this story. He gets on his donkey and he starts riding his donkey to go see King Balak. 
right? Kind of a negotiated price, perhaps. And so as he's going, the, God's not going to allow this to happen. God is going to stop this from happening. So as he's traveling on his donkey, the donkey is walking down the road, and the donkey, not, not Balaam, the donkey sees the angel of the Lord stand right in the middle of the road. And the donkey naturally is terrified. So what does he do? The donkey just takes off and turns into a field. And Balaam is all ticked off, so he's beating his donkey, and he's cursing his donkey, and he gives the donkey a yank, and the donkey eventually gets back to the road. Well, the angel of the Lord moves further down the road. And so here comes Balaam riding on his donkey. And again, the angel of the Lord stands right in the middle of the road. This time, there are these two kind of walls, these two, two walls that are along the side of the road. And so the donkey sees, Balaam cannot see it. He cannot see it. The donkey sees the angel of the Lord and he swerves. And as he swerves, Balaam scrapes his leg and scrapes his foot. And he's, he's hopping mad. And so he beats the donkey and he curses the donkey. He yanks the donkey back into the road. And the donkey gets back on the road and starts going again. The angel of the Lord moves further down the road. Balaam still can't see. The angel of the Lord moves further down the road. And this time, the angel of the Lord stands right at this pass. There's no room to, you can't pass off it. You, there's no walls, there's nothing. And so when the donkey sees him, the donkey is afraid and the donkey just drops. It just sits down. The donkey just sits. And Balaam goes crazy. And he's Mike Tyson on the donkey and he's beating the thing and he's cursing the donkey and he's yanking on the donkey and the donkey just lays down. And all of a sudden the donkey turns up. And the donkey says, why are you beating me like this? And Balaam says, because you've made me look stupid three times. Notice this. Balaam, because I would have said, I'm, I'm sorry, did you just say something? Like, <laughs> right? And Balaam's having this conversation with the donkey. And he's like, because you've made me look stupid these three times. And the donkey says, have I not been your donkey for almost all your life? Have you ever known me to do anything like this? Is this, is this even within my nature? And Balaam says, no. You've never been like that. And immediately it says, the scripture says that God opened his eyes and he saw the angel of the Lord and he recognized that the donkey probably saved his life. And so God speaks to him right then and God says, all right, you go ahead. You go to King Balak, that's all right, but here's the deal. You can only say what I allow you to speak. And Balaam says, okay. So they get there to Balak and Balak says, great, glad you're here. Here's what we're gonna pay you. Uh, here's what I'm going to do. And he takes him up to the top of a mountain and he looks out over everything and he says, I want you to just curse the Israelites. And Balaam says, well, I can only say what God tells me to say. And he says, right on, just curse the Israelites. And Balaam steps up and he prophesies and he blesses the Israelites. And Balak says, yeah, that's not going to happen. We're going to a different mountaintop. He takes him down. They go up to a different top mountaintop. It happens a second time and a third time. And every time Balaam speaks, all he is able to do is bless the Israelites. And finally, Balak says, if you're going to bless the Israelites, you might as well just get home, go home because I'm not having that anymore. And Balaam says, before I go, I have to give you four more prophecies. And he prophesies about the nation of Israel as he's blessing them. He tells one he speaks a second, always blessing Israel, speaks a third, and then he speaks a fourth. Now remember, this would have been passed on. This, this word would have been passed on. We're talking about the three wise men. How did they know about this star? Here's the prophecy that they would have heard. This is what Balaam spoke over the nation of Israel in the presence of Balak. Numbers chapter 22, four, he says, a star will rise from Jacob, and a scepter will emerge from Israel. Now, many of you know this. Some of you may not know this. You had Abraham. His son was Isaac. His son was Jacob. Jacob had his name changed to Israel. A star will rise from Israel. And when it does, 
A scepter will emerge from Israel. A king will come out of Israel. Listen, when you see this star rise up over Israel, there will be a king emerge who will rule over the entire world. These wise men knew it. And so when they were in eastern lands, maybe in Babylon, they saw that star and they said, oh, this is it. We have got to go now. And now they take off. And now they go to Jerusalem. They're, they're headed for Jerusalem, right? Now, Matthew's account continues. And he says, about that time, right, some wise men from eastern lands, we read this, they arrived in Jerusalem and they're asking, where is the newborn king of Jews? We saw his star, and now notice what they say. And we have come to worship him. See, at the birth of the Christ child, they didn't just come to acknowledge a baby. They came to worship him. I think it's very interesting that we get so enamored with, oh, it's about the birth of Christ, it's about the birth of Christ, it's about the birth of Christ. Man, would Christmas point us to worship? Now, sometimes worship becomes a churchy word that we just throw around and we go, yeah, yeah, worship, yeah, we're having a worship service. And nobody really knows what it means. We, we just throw it out there. And I don't know if we really cognitively think. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says, because Romans chapter 12, Paul is going to lay out for us. He's going to define for us what worship is. This is the Apostle Paul speaking, and he says, and so, dear brothers and sisters, he's writing to the Roman church, Christians, brothers and sisters, I plead with you, give your bodies to God, pledge your allegiance to God, give your devotion to God, follow after God, obey God, because of all he's done for you. Like he's talking in a manner in which we live. And then he goes on in the very next verse, in that same verse, he says, let your bodies then be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind that God will find acceptable. This is the way that we really worship. You know, we just have to be very careful that we don't walk into a worship service, sing a lot of songs really loud, make sure we raise our hands up, and then we walk out of here and we live like hell. Do you know what I'm saying? Like somewhere along the line, like these two things have got to converge. And so I would say this at Christmas, remember this, that the wise men at the birth of Christ, they came to worship. I'm saying Cedar Valley Church. What if, what if Christmas became a time when we would just say, that's right, Merry Christmas, that's right. How am I living? Am I living in a way that honors God, that glorifies God, that brings attention to the name of God? Am I, am I living in a manner that, that, that testifies to the Christ, to the fact that the Christ has changed me? Every time we say Merry Christmas, we don't just go birth of the Christ child. We go, is my life worship? Like, is my life worship, right? But then there's something else that I want you to see that they said. Because the wise men said this, we saw his star as it arose and we have come to worship him. Notice the we, the we, we. And we know that these were wise men from eastern lands. These were not Jews. These men were not Jews. These men would have been seen as outsiders. Now here's why I find this so interesting. Because this is recorded in Matthew's gospel. Now, those of you who aren't real familiar with the Bible, we have four gospels, right? So many of you know this. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They were all four written by different writers. And each writer wrote kind of with an intended audience. They wrote to different groups a little bit. Like Luke, for instance, was the, was the only Gentile writer. 
Luke, Luke writes to a Gentile audience. You, you just see in the way that Luke writes, he's writing to outsiders, people who are not inside of the Jewish traditions and the Jewish faith. Okay, Matthew, on the other hand, Matthew writes to a very Jewish audience. And we know that because when you read Matthew's gospel, he references the Old Testament. He cites the Old Testament. He quotes the Old Testament prophets more than any other gospel. He's writing in mind with a Jewish audience. Okay, having said that, now watch what he does. This is the first story that he tells in his gospel. And the very first story that he tells in his gospel are about wise men from eastern lands. He starts his whole gospel with this story. We, we, we Jews, we outsiders, we, we who are not from the Jewish traditions. It, it would have been mind-numbing to Jews. And then think about this. Now that's at the very beginning of Matthew's gospel. Now go to the very end of Matthew's gospel. There are only 28 chapters to the gospel of Matthew. And at the very end of the 28th verse, these are the last words of Jesus. Remember this, that Jesus rose from the dead. He was crucified on a cross. He died. He was good and dead. Three days. He rose from the dead. He walked the earth for 40 days. And we don't just believe that because it was written. It was actually written because it happened because people were eyewitnesses and they said, we gotta write this down. He walked the earth for 40 days. It said at one time that he, he, he presented himself to over 500 people. There were plenty of people who saw Jesus. Okay, now he's about to ascend back into heaven. So he gets his disciples, and they're all a place in Galilee, and he's talking to them, and this is the last thing in the last bit of Matthew's gospel. Jesus came and told his disciples, I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of who? Of fellow Jews? No of all the nations. Look how Matthew, who's writing to a Jewish audience, begins his gospel by saying, wise men from Eastern lands, they were the first ones who came to worship. Jewish, my Jewish brothers and sisters, do you understand that? That's what Matthew would have been saying. And then just to make a, a point of it, he bookends his gospel at the very end of the gospel. And he says, go make disciples of, of all nations. It's very interesting to me that Matthew is saying, it's not just about us. It's not just, and church, I'm saying this to us today. Christmas is not just for us. It's not just about us. It's not just for church folk. It's not just us against them, against those people who don't recognize that Christmas is about the Christ child and they've over-commercialized it. Christmas is for us. No, no, Christmas is about everybody. Christmas is for everyone. It's our job to invite them into the story. Right? I would tell you this, and I think this is very important that we get this, that the Savior who came into the world is the Savior for all the world. Translation, because I'm very, very simple, I would also just say it this way. It ain't just about us. We think it's just about us in the church. It's not just about us in the church. It's not just about the birth of the Christ. It's about the worship of Christ and how we live. And it's not just about us in the church. This Savior that came would be a Savior who would die, and he would die for everybody. Now, just to be very clear about this, right? Because when we say all the world, usually we talk about things like this. Did you know that there are over 6,000 unreached people groups in the world? An unreached people group is a group of people who have zero access to the gospel. It means they live in a place where where no one even knows the name of Jesus. They will never hear the name Jesus in their lifetime. No one in their local community has a Bible, no one. And there are no churches that preach of Christ. There would be no churches in that, in that area. There are 6,000 unreached people groups in the world today. Translation, what that means? 
About 40% of the world's population have never heard, think about this, have never heard the name Jesus, not even as a swear word. I'm saying nothing. They will never hear the name Jesus. 40% of the population, it translates to over 3 billion. The world population is almost at 8 billion now. It's at three, over 3 billion people in the world will never in their lifetime hear the name of Jesus. So what I'm saying is, listen, Cedar Valley is a church about, we, we fund foreign projects. We send missionaries to the lost parts of the world. We send missionaries to areas of the world where if I tell you, I have to kill you. We send missionaries to those kinds of places. And we're gonna continue to do that and we will raise money and we will send money and we will spend money and we think that the gospel is for everybody. We think everybody's gotta know that. Okay, so I believe that. I believe that wholeheartedly. I believe that because the Savior who came into the world is a Savior for all the world. Okay, now, having said that, just, just want you hear where my heart is. I'm extremely pragmatic. I mean, I'm really pragmatic. And I was just talking to a friend, this happened last week. Yeah, do, you, do you all get to this age where you're like, yeah, I was just talking to this guy and you remember the conversation, you're like, I have no, I have no clue who I was talking to. Okay, this is one of those. And somebody will come up to me afterwards and go, yeah, we were having that conversation. And we were talking about our missions teams and our, and our teams that we send and our global teams. And he said this to me, now I've been on four missions trips in my life. I've been on four. And this guy's been on mission trips, right? And he said, you know what's crazy about mission trips? It's just really easy to share your faith and talk about your faith when, when you're off somewhere else. I said, oh yeah. I said, tell me what you're thinking. He goes, it's anonymity. You can be somewhere and here's what you know they're never gonna see me again. I'm not worried what they think about me. It's just, it's just a fact, let's just be honest. You're going somewhere where nobody will ever see you again. No one will ever know you again. It's real easy to talk about your faith. And so, yeah, I believe this. I believe that the Savior who came into the world is a Savior for all the world. But I'm gonna give you the big so what this morning. And if you're new, you'll, you'll figure this one out really quick. The big, we do a big so what at the every, end of every service, and it just means this, blah, 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 blah. You can sleep the whole time, just wake up for this part. This is all this is. The big so what is the Savior for all the world is a Savior for your world. See, the Savior that came into all the world is, is the savior for all the kids that you go to school with and all the people that you sit next to in class and all the kids that you're in band with or that you go to play sports with. Like that savior for the whole world, yep, for that world. And the savior who came into the world for all the world is a savior of your world, meaning when you go to work, that savior is for everybody in your workplace. And it's your job to take the savior there. And when you cruise around your neighborhood and you're dealing around your neighborhood, the savior who came into the world for all the world is the savior of your world, meaning in your neighborhood. And it's your job to take him there. Like, like that's, that's our job. That's our job. See, I just think we get so enamored with Christmas and we get so romantic, and even as church people, we get so romanticized. It's the baby Jesus, it's the baby Jesus. And, and we forget like, but what comes out of that? Is it impacting the way we live? And do we believe that that baby became the savior and that that savior came for everybody, for outsiders, not just for the Jews? Jesus is not a Jewish savior. He's not an American savior. He is the savior for everybody. Okay, that's our job. That's our job. You'll figure this one out real quick. If you're new to Seal Valley Church, we are not a church about coming and sitting and being comfortable. We're a church on a mission. This is our purpose. This was God ordained. 
right? So here's what I'm saying. I'm saying we've got to contextualize it. Yes, we're going to financially support the rest of the world, but we've got to contextualize it. And so then we, we have the big so what, so now what about the big now what? Well, the big now what is simple, Christmas in the neighborhood. Like we just made this really easy. Christmas in the neighborhood. Like our team has spent unbelievable hours building sets and setting up the atrium and creating, right, so that you'd have a good event to invite people to. So get busy. Get busy when you're at school. And get busy when you go to work. And get busy when you're in your neighborhood. Right? Invite. Like one of the easiest things you can do. We want to have conversations about Jesus. We want to share our faith. But a really easy one, where again, we're told this 80% of the population would go to church at Christmas if somebody just invited them. I mean, we've even produced these things, right? I mean, knock yourself out. Grab an invite. Send an invite off to a neighbor. Just zoom. There you go. Like that's why we produced them. That's why we made them. That's, that's what we've got to be doing. Christmas in the neighborhood is all about that. Here's what I'm hoping. I'm hoping maybe you came in today and you walked in today and you were invited. And you've never been to this church before. And you don't really go to church and church isn't a thing for you. And you've got some awareness and you're kind of curious. And you thought, hey, it's Christmas and I'll go. I'm kind of hoping maybe you'll come back. I'm kind of hoping you'll go. Honest, can I just be really gut level honest with you? Because <laughs> this is the way my brain works. My biggest hope, you may not like this, my biggest hope is that we invite people to church. They'll come in and they'll go, that didn't suck. Like, that's kind of my biggest hope. Like, sure, I'd go back again, right? So if that was you this morning, you're like, I have questions about faith. I've just never thought, like, can I ask those questions? I'm hoping you'll come back. I, I, I would tell you, go to Alpha, go to Alpha. Alpha is a place where you can walk into class and just go, I always grew up going to church. I think it's about the dumbest thing in the world, but I am curious. That's where you can go and ask it, right? So I'm hoping you'll come back. And I'm hoping as a church, we'll get the really big picture Christmas. We won't romanticize Christmas. We'll get the big picture Christmas and we'll go to work because we have a mission and this fits in beautifully to our mission. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for your goodness. Thank you, Father, for your love for us. Thank you, Father, for your patience with us. Thank you, God, that even when we go off crazy, you're still there. You're still patient with us, oh God. We're grateful for that. Father, we thank you for this Christmas season. We thank you for the birth of the Christ child. And I pray, Father, that you would make us mindful of what that really means, that this Savior came and he died, and he died for us and he saved us, and it's gotta impact our lives. We've gotta live differently. We've gotta be a different people. And I'm praying, Father, that we would also recognize that this Savior came for all the world, not just for church folks, not just for those in the house, for everybody. God, would you just, would you just ingrain that in us? I'm asking you to keep your heads bowed for just a minute because I, I want to just address this. I think some of you, you get here, and I've, I've prayed for you just so you know that. I've prayed for the visitors who would come this morning, for people who would come back to church. And maybe you'd say, man, I used to go to church and I was really into my faith, but then I've gone so far away from my faith and I don't want to have anything to do with faith. But maybe I'm curious, maybe I'm curious. I'm talking to you this morning. And for people who walked in here this morning, you said, you know, faith has never been a big deal to me, but however it happened, God revealed himself to me this morning. And I just want to make sure that I give you an opportunity 
this morning. And so I wanna know who you are. I wanna pray for you very specifically. People got their heads bowed, don't sweat it. But if that's you this morning, I'm gonna ask you on the count of three, I'll say three, and then you just raise your hand, give me a look, raise your hand, let me know, because I wanna pray specifically for you this morning. So if that's you this morning, you say, hey, God is speaking to me, I've gotten far away from God, or I've just never really drawn close to God. If that's you, just on the count of three, one, two, three, just shoot your hand up, give me a look. Yep, I got you, I got you, right up in the balcony, right on. Who else? Raise your hand, give me a look, give me a wave, quick. Got it, got you in the back, yep, awesome on the floor, love that, thank you. Who else? Raise your hand, just throw your hand up, just saying, hey, that's me this morning, God's revealed himself to me this morning. I know I need to draw back close to God, I got you, I got you up in the balcony, yep. Down on the floor as I walk across, just raise your hand, just give me a peek, give me a look, just let me know like, hey, God is speaking to me. God's calling me this morning. I sense it. I sense the voice of God and I've heard God. I got you. I got you. Right on. Thank you, brother. Yes, I got you, sister. Yep, up in the balcony. Right on. Just throw your hand up. Give me a look. Give me a wave. I'm going to pray for you this morning. Right on. Love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. Got you, sister. Thank you. So if that was you this morning, maybe you didn't raise your hand, but we're all gonna pray a prayer together. It's not a magic prayer, it's just simply a prayer that says, hey God, I recognize who you are, I recognize who I am, and today I surrender my life. So I'm gonna ask this all together, we're all gonna pray this prayer aloud together. God in heaven, I acknowledge who you are. I acknowledge who I am. You're holy, and I'm a sinner. Today I confess my sin. I'm sorry for my sin. I surrender my life. Jesus, come inside of me today. I invite you in today. Take over my life. Give me the strength to live the rest of my days committed to you, surrendered to you. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.